This is the Jefferson Exchange. We got an unpleasant surprise last week when we got word that Brooke Ellison had died. We talked to her in June of last year about her remarkable life. Paralyzed at age 11, finished high school, went to Harvard and graduated and became a professor. She pushed the limits and pushed hard and told her story in two books. We'll go back to that conversation from last spring about Brooke Ellison's book, Look Both Ways. Brooke Ellison, welcome to the Jefferson Exchange. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. More than 20 years since the first book, how different does life look to you now? Oh, my goodness, yeah. So when I first wrote Miracles Happened, I was uh, a wee lass. I was only uh, 22 years old, having just graduated from college. And, you know, I, I think that my perspective on my own life and disability was very different, kind of almost um in its in coming to its fruition, I wasn't until many years thereafter that I was able to look at my life vastly differently than I had up until that point. Um, after my accident, kind of ten years after my accident, I still hadn't really understood disability uh, in terms of the strengths that it creates for people. Right, I understood it in terms of its deficits. I almost understood. Um, my accident and the disability that um, that it had um, precipitated as only fundamental weaknesses in my life, things that I should not um, feel good about or should other things that I should feel almost ashamed of, kind of buying into a very socio-cultural um, uh, stereotype of disability. Uh, all these years later, I've come to understand disability very differently. Um, so I, I wrote Look Both Ways almost exactly 20 years after the publication of Miracles Happen. And, um, you know, this book is less a chronology of events that has tra- that have transpired in my life and much more um, kind of deep introspective lessons that I've learned about um, some of the struggles that you endure by virtue of living with disability and how they are based in a society that's not necessarily all that welcoming to people with disabilities and the virtues or the epistemology that I have developed and many people with disabilities develop as well, um, kind of the skill set of adaptation and resilience that you have to start to to develop um, just navigating a world that's not really set up for you. So that's kind of the difference between these two works and and, uh, reflections on my life at two very different points. So so your thoughts on disability have certainly evolved over those 20 years. Have societies evolved as much, do you think, or, or are we pretty much in the, in the same place we were? I mean, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, but as we as you get to in the book, there are still some issues with compliance there. Right, right, yeah. So um, I, I think that we have made progress, but not nearly as much progress as we as we could to could have and and ought to have. Um, I've seen society, particularly over the past several years, you know, as um, we have grappled with racial reckoning and you know, ideas of greater social justice. Yes, I have seen um, society make some inroads in terms of how we do how we can include people with disabilities, but certainly not nearly as much as as it ought to have. Um, So I think that we typically understand disability in the terms that I had 
understood disability almost as you know, people with disabilities as being that population that we can either choose to associate with or not, right? Or choose to include in, in how we think about the world or not. And like I think that's a really unfortunate way of looking at things. Um, as far as I'm concerned, disability is, is a fundamental part of the human experience, right? And um, you know, it's, it's just a part of humanity, as you had mentioned, you know, we, there are millions and millions of people around the world, actually a billion people around the world who live with physical disability directly, and many more on top of that who live with, who um, have family members or friends um, who experience disability. So it's kind of the biggest minority in the world, 15% of the global population experiences disability, so it's, it's not, not a rarity by any stretch. And um, you know, we all, I think, to understand disability as kind of like a binary construct that you either belong to or, or you don't belong to misses the kind of the bigger picture of how we're all on a spectrum of ability and you know, that changes over time, right? It's not a category that you either belong to or you don't throughout your entire lifespan kind of enter it or exit it at different points in our lives and we should create a world that that is as um welcoming to everybody as we possibly can right without buying into some of the visions of disability that i think we typically have that people with disabilities are um non-productive or um you know not valuable parts of the world or that their lives are not worth the same value as other people's are and uh, kind of shift the conversation to the kinds of assets that they bring to the conversation and, and to the world. Look so we at, haven't certainly haven't gotten to that point yet. Mm -hmm. um, the ADA has taken us to a certain point, but certainly not far enough. You know, as you mentioned, I think the entire structure behind the ADA has been uh, one of compliance and like one of establishing mandates, which for the time I think was necessary. I think that was the appropriate structure at the time, but I think we ought to be beyond that now. Like we shouldn't be looking at access and adaptation as just like the bare minimum that we ought to make in order to give somebody just a token gesture i think we should be thinking about how uh, everybody is made better by um the inclusion of people with disabilities and that if you don't you're kind of missing out so that is the point that i would love to see society get to and to whatever extent i can help to elevate or advance that conversation i feel really uh, quite proud Brooke Ellison is our guest on the Jefferson Exchange, uh, paralyzed and quadriplegic since age 11, the author of a new memoir called, a recent memoir, called Look Both Ways. Let me take this personally. People are wondering about, about the raspiness of your voice, and, and you mentioned in the book the 14 breaths you get from the ventilator every minute, which makes readers suddenly aware of, one, how often we breathe, and two, how often, how seldom we think about it. You have never gotten used to it, you tell us in the book. No, no. So that's a really interesting point, right? So I am acutely aware of every single breath that I take. Um, you know, most people just do it you know, 
um, unconsciously or subconsciously, I'm extremely aware of every breath that comes into and out of my lungs um, because if it's, it's powered by a ventilator. I'm not actually breathing in through my mouth or my nose, um, and that could change at any time, right? So I'm attached to a ventilator through a, you know, a circuit of tubes, and um, if that were to become disconnected in any way, then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm unable to breathe, and it's just a matter of time before I have less time. Somebody um, is you know, here to reconnect. Like I could, you know, I could, I could die. Um, so I'm very, very acutely aware of that. Um, so actually, for many weeks after my accident, uh, I was not able to talk at all. In fact, many people who run ventilators are not able to talk, and certainly not with the um, the fluidity or kind of the ease of of. Um, of speaking that I've been able to integrate into my life. And I feel very thankful uh, about that. Um, yeah, for sure, for eight weeks after my accident, I was not able to talk at all. So when you are on a ventilator, typically what happens is the air comes through the tube and then uh, goes back out the tube that it came in. And so it doesn't, the air doesn't ever go past your vocal cords. It doesn't allow them to vibrate. Um, I've had, since have a little valve that allows me to do that. And I remember the various, that was given to me, I think eight weeks after my accident. So for those full two months, I wasn't able to talk at all. I didn't think I was ever going to be able to talk again. And I remember um, when I first heard my vo voice after my accident, thinking, oh my gosh, this is not how I have ever sounded before. This, this is not my voice. This can't be my voice. Um, and over the years, I've since gotten, um, you know, gotten used to that. And, you know, I, I um, it's the mechanism by which I'm able to communicate, right? It's, it's, it's the, um, were it not for my voice, however different it might sound right now, I wouldn't be able to effectuate the change that I'm able to in the world. So I, I've come to love it, even though it's different and, you know, it's, it's mine. And I know that it's quite powerful, even if it sounds weak or sounds different than everybody else's does. You are a person of accomplishments. We haven't mentioned this yet, but you've you've gotten several degrees. You've got a PhD now. You're you're teaching uh, colleges uh, courses at the at, at Stony Brook. You you've done all kinds of things in the world, and yet the reactions people have to you are based on your disability. You talked about, mm -hmm. uh, for example, somebody actually said to you once, "We don't want your kind here." That's right. That's right. Yeah. So actually, um, so I did my undergraduate and my master's work both at uh, at Harvard. I did my undergraduate in cognitive neuroscience and then my master's degree at the, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in public policy. So and then I did my uh, I ran for public office. Actually, after that, I ran for New York State Senate and started a nonprofit organization. And then New Christopher Reeve had made a movie about my life based on my life from the time of my accident until my graduation from Harvard in 2000. And then, as you mentioned, now I'm a PhD and I teach courses on um, medical ethics and healthcare policy and uh, kind of disability as an applied uh, avenue of medical ethics. And yet to this day, um, there will be people who will see me and, and judge me um, entirely based on what they see without getting to know me. And I think that is an unfortunate, um, uh, I guess, strategy that many people implement into their lives. And I, and I understand 
that I understand kind of the hesitation or the, uh, um, I guess, intrinsic discomfort that people feel about people with disabilities, largely because they have a lack of dis- of exposure. You know, despite the numbers of people with disabilities, people feel uncomfortable or, that, or like um, they're going to embarrass themselves by trying to um, introduce themselves to somebody with a disability or they or you kind of I, I believe quite strongly that people don't know how somebody is either going to be able to respond or not so you kind of, they kind of expect the, the least level of ability so as to um, prevent themselves from being embarrassed like you extending a hand to somebody who might not be able to return the gesture or ask a question to somebody who might not be able to respond appropriately so they assume those levels of of inability rather than getting to know somebody and yes just as you mentioned there there's been um, there have been instances where I've been in a public setting and people have either looked at me um, with some level of skepticism or have come right out and said to me, um, like, we don't want people like you here. Right. So as I was looking for helping my brother find an apartment up in Massachusetts, so a state that is known for its um, kind of liberality and uh, general acceptance of people. And we were at an apartment building, um, kind of looking around, and there was one of the inhabitants or one of the residents there who came directly up to me and to my family uh, and said, you know, you can't live here. I don't know why you're here. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't uh, cater to your kind. And I said, uh, that was the first time I ever had an experience so um upfront and so I guess jarring I was just like stunned to silence and I think at that point in my life I really didn't have the capacity to even respond appropriately if I wanted to but I was just stunned and devastated and it kind of helped to steer my life in a direction that wait a second there is a lot that needs to be changed there are a lot of stereotypes that people have that um that need to be altered and if I could play a role in doing that even having undergone an experience like that in order to get to that point, then I am uh, eager to do it. Brooke, in about two minutes, has technology evolved in 30 years to add to your quality of life? Oh, technology is a tremendous part of my life. I wouldn't. I know that I wouldn't be where I am today were it not for the technology that I use on a daily basis. And I'm very much of a mind that you can't talk about disability without talking about technology and, and vice versa. I mean, so much so that I am right now, the, also in addition to my position at Stony Brook University, the Vice President of Technology and Innovation at an organization called United Spinal or United Spinal Association to, to talk to tech leaders about how to make their technology even more accessible for people with uh, disabilities, specifically those with uh, wheelchair users and those with spinal cord injury, because the the um, horizon is so broad and the opportunity is so great and the impact on people's lives is so tremendous. If we just think about it that way, and I understand disability to really involve the technology that we innovate that can either empower somebody or further disable somebody. Brooke Ellison from our interview in the spring of 2023. Brooke died last week at age 45. There's more interview and you'll hear it when we come back to the Jefferson Exchange on JPR.
This is the Jefferson Exchange. We felt compelled to replay our interview with Brooke Ellison after learning that she died last week at the age of 45. Her lifespan figured to be much shorter after she was paralyzed in a car accident at age 11. She graduated from Harvard, became a professor herself, wrote a memoir. Christopher Reeve turned it into a movie. And then Brooke Ellison wrote another memoir 20 years later called Look Both Ways. Her visit to the JX last year was about that book. Brooke, I want to come back to technology for just a second because there's a story you tell in the book about being able to use computers because of a tongue-touch keypad, but then the company that made the tongue-touch keypad couldn't make a profit and so ceased to make it. Is that, Have you run into several situations like that in your life? Uh, fortunately, not, um, not many, but uh, largely because the technology that is most... Um, you know, suited for me just doesn't exist, right? So, um, so yeah, the story that you're mentioning, I, I use a, uh, it looks like almost like a, um, like a re, uh, retainer essentially, but you know, a little bit thicker than that that sits on the roof of my mouth that previously was able to, um, to activate my wheelchair, but then the kind of technology just didn't, um, it wasn't usable for new iterations of wheelchairs. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it also uh, activated the mouse on my computer, the television, um, the telephone, right? So it offered all of these um, avenues of independence that I would not have had otherwise. And you know, these are the things that people with disabilities kind of live without or learn to live without. But this technology afforded me the ability to do that, you know, to, you know, to access my world in a lot of ways and to get through college and to, you know, to, to traverse the streets of, of Long Island running for public office. I was writing my PhD dissertation and um, kind of had plotted a plan a path forward and how I was going to get it done and then had come home from uh, the university where I was, Stony Brook University in fact, and um, got a call from the owner of the company saying essentially, sorry, we're not doing this anymore. We don't see this as within our financial best interest and, uh, you know, basically you know, good night and good luck. And I remember just sitting here in the same spot that I'm sitting in right now, actually, and thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to continue with my life. I don't know how I'm going to to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do my dissertation. I don't know how I'm going to drive my wheelchair. You're none of this. Like I was just, you know, just shocked. I felt like I had become paralyzed all over again. Uh, fortunately, I have some friends at the university who are in um, engineering who can help me um, kind of limp along for all of these years. This is the now, I think, 11 years or so, if not maybe a little bit longer, 12 years, um, allowing me to have technology that I can interface with my computer. Um, but the, the level of innovation is just quite, quite minimal. And it's been my experience that uh, people with disabilities, especially those as profound as my own, kind of innovate on their own, right? Kind of do a lot of do-it-yourself projects because there's just nothing in this space at all. And you know, fortunately, there are some startup companies and uh, even universities and students that are that have have seen the level of challenge and said, "Okay, we can do something about this. We have the knowledge to do something about this. We have the technology. We just haven't directed it in the right way." And I think that's often what engineers are: is like problem solvers. They see a problem, they want to devise a solution to it, but many of them just don't fully understand or are not aware. Of 
of the level of difficulty that many people with disabilities experience and how they can be a solution to it. So that's kind of how I've positioned myself and many of the roles that I've taken on is kind of to be that bridge for the people who have the knowledge and the skills to create this level of innovation can actually get it in the hands of those who need it the most. Brooke, talk about your family, if you would. Your parents are your caregivers. You have a brother and a sister, and it sounds like you've been through quite a stew of feelings about responsibility and guilt and all kinds of things over 30 years since the accident. Sure, yeah. So um, writing about my family and the role that I play about my family was probably the most difficult part of Look Both Ways. You know, I've, I really forced myself to think very introspectively and very deeply about things that I never really wanted to think about before and didn't really have the capacity, the emotional capacity to think about before. So, um, yeah, I kind of forced myself to think about you not only the impact that my accident had on me, but on my entire family. And, you know, I, I knew that everybody was affected by my accident. Like that was not um, that was not news or kind of anything particularly insightful in, in my own uh, self-analysis. But um, like I thought much harder about how I, well, the things that I was thinking about vis-a-vis other family members. So I kind of thought that since I was the person who experienced my accident most directly, you know, obviously since I was the one who was hit by the car, that, um, you know, essentially everybody had to just kind of accommodate that, that, you know, the kinds of changes that that I had to undergo um, should be met with equal changes in everybody else's life. And, you know, they should, then everybody else should just kind of fall in line because I had experienced the brunt of things and like that was just to be expected. Yeah, so I know now that that was an unfair way of looking at things. Like there were many hours of the day where my parents were dedicating their time uh, to my care and, you taking care of medical needs. And I remember having this conversation with my brother not too long ago. He would be upstairs in his bedroom kind of looking at the globe or uh, you know, memorizing the presidents and that kind of thing, state capitals, kind of doing things independently. And, um, you know, my, my sister and brother had to forego a lot of the, I think, typical rites of passage that children uh, experience because, yeah, I wasn't able to do those things myself. And, um, like, that was a loss for them. That was a big loss for them. I remember after my accident, um, my brother, uh, my one mother was with me in the hospital for a total of nine months. Uh, so she was away with me first at Stony Brook Hospital, so not too far from my home, but then all the way in New Jersey where I was um, in rehabilitation for seven and a half months months and you know my brother and I were and still are very close so he lost for those nine months um you two key people in his life and that was really traumatic for him that was really uh, a difficult experience for him to undergo but he did it with you know he did it bravely he did it without ever questioning any kind of alteration in the schedule in his life that he had to you know to integrate into it and like that was that was a big deal so writing about those things and writing about um 
how much I wish I understood those things as a child and had that level of self-awareness as a child that I think I have now. Um, like that, I, that is one of my biggest regrets that I, that I wasn't more mindful about those kinds of things and those kinds of sacrifices and pains that my sister and brother and, and parents had at the time of my accident and, and for years thereafter. Brooke Ellison is our guest on the Jefferson Exchange, uh, paralyzed from the neck down in a car accident at age 11, writing about uh, her life now in a second memoir called Look Both Ways. You write uh, of the camouflage, as you refer to it, the, the disability camouflages the rest of you. I mean, so how, how much psychic work have you had to do in your life to show people who you are? <laughs> um, so I think this is typically the case, or is often the case with people with disabilities. Um, they're, 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 they get lost. They're obvious, but lost at the same time, right? They are very visible, but at the same time invisible in terms of their individuality or how they can contribute to uh, the world, to the conversation, or to you know, anybody's experience for the better. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's often the case. And certainly it's been the case for me that people with disabilities feel like they have to be you know, that much more than everybody else, right? You're know, that much funnier, that much um, more engaging, that much you know, um, active in the classroom um, in order to, you know, to for people to see them as anything other than uh, somebody who is who just fits a specific um, stereotype. So that that was something that I had to come to terms with in years since my accident. That you know that I have something um, intrinsically worthy, right? That I didn't need to feel like I needed to um, make myself something that I wasn't, or that people could see me as valuable um, just for who I am. Like that took a little bit of time and like I didn't need to put that much pressure on myself that I have gifts that I think people benefit from by knowing me. And that was like tremendously liberating to, to get to know and empowering to get to know and took a lot of self-analysis and uh, self-confidence and, and, you know, just kind of belief in myself that, and belief in other people even that um, maybe the thoughts that I had about how people were perceiving me um, was not giving them a fair shake either. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was a, a lot of, uh, internal struggle and a lot of uh, internal evolution that I think I'm not alone in. And um, I think, you know, disability is a very profound and obvious manifestation of many of the struggles that people face, just generally speaking, like whenever we are experiencing challenge or difficulty of any kind we feel like we're isolated or we feel like um you know people couldn't possibly understand our experiences and thus we kind of distance ourselves from the enormity of the experience itself and i think that that doesn't do anybody any good really i think um people can learn from each other can benefit from knowing other people who have undergone hardships that are either similar to or slightly different from their own and can grow together so that was something that took me a bit of time to to figure out and you know to not feel like i had to be ashamed of my disability or to hide it or to try to mask it in some way but be proud of it and know that people could learn something as a result 
Brooke, you, you tell us in the book that you get email from people all over the world, and you got one in particular from Connor Berryhill. Uh, can you tell us what he wrote? Yeah, yeah. So this email kind of came out of nowhere. Um, so I, yeah, I get correspondences from, from people who I don't know uh, all the time who have seen my film, who have read about me, um, who have heard about me in some way, shape, or form. And I got an email from a young boy, uh, Connor, who um, has autism, is on the autism spectrum, and talked about how he was going to write a book about people with disabilities and how he views his disability and disability in general as a a manifestation of superheroes right as you know, superheroism and like i had never really thought about it in those terms before and i, I thought about how brilliant and self-aware this child must be to understand his life in those terms at such a young age. It took me a very long time after my accident to understand my disability in terms of the virtues and the and the skill set that it creates for me and the kinds of leadership and, and hopefulness and resilience that you have to integrate into your life when you live with a disability. Um, you know, this, this young boy had already thought about those things and already viewed his life in those terms and from that vantage point and like I thought that that was absolutely brilliant so he wanted me to be a part of the book that he was writing and you know, the story that he was telling and even more so kind of the movement he was hoping to spearhead changing how we understand disability you know, not just within the disability community itself but in the entire right in the entire society and like that is so valuable that is so uh, important and that you certainly not to call myself as a superhero in any way but um, I think that disability really uh, creates a unique vantage point from which to view the world um, and like that is really valuable and it is it's different and it's powerful and it's meaningful and purposeful and um really important so like that was life-changing for me and really an important way to you know, to continue to move ahead with my life it's a pretty amazing book in the sense that you 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 talk about some of the things you've talked about just you know the stuff you've accomplished you know the phd the harvard all that stuff and running for state senate uh, unsuccessfully as it turned out in new york but but also you let us into your into your head and and there's some some real honest stuff in here and it's uh, it's really a pleasure to get to read it the book is called look both ways by brooke ellison brooke thanks so much for joining us on the jefferson exchange oh, thank you jeff it was a pleasure to talk to you Brooke Ellison's death last week at 45 was caused by complications from her quadriplegia, her mother announced. We're grateful for her brief connection to the JX. And that's it for The Exchange today. I'm Jeffrey Riley. Take care.